This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcast. Now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Tommy, what do we got today? If you look in the title, is uh, part two of our discussion on the robber barons. So we talked about a couple different robber barons like Vanderbilt and Rockefeller and how they've made all their monies during that time. Today we're going to look at J.P. Morgan and Andrew, Andrew, Andrew Carnegie, Carnegie, how they made their fortunes. Also introduced the concept of social Darwinism, which was the newest thing at this time, but really justified a lot of these robber barons and what they did. Yep. Until you have the gospel of wealth, which is something we're going to discuss today with Andrew Carnegie, who kind of alters that a little bit. But absolutely, this is part two of our two-part episode on the robber barons of the Gilded Age. So just like as a quick recap, so for those of you that did not listen to episode one for some reason... Well, um, don't give them okay. a recap. They they have to go back and listen to episode one. This is like part well, that two. is true. But I'm just going to like you, know, you, don't, you don't watch these out of order. This isn't like you know the Fast and the Furious movies. Not we're going to have like 10, 13 <laughs> movies. It's only part one and two. I'm sure people you know can go back and listen to it or have already listened to it. <laughs> in quick recap, right? Talking late 1800s, really the premise in the beginning of this, many business leaders believed in what was known as laissez-faire, which basically was a term that is French that stood for to let do. Um, right, hands off, yeah. Hands off, yeah. It's basically hands of capitalism. Laissez-faire capitalism allowed companies to conduct business uh, without any intervention really by the government. And these business leaders, particularly the four that we discussed on this two-part episode, believed that government regulation would destroy any form of individual self-reliance. Uh, it would reduce profits and harm the economy. And as we'll see today with J.P. Morgan, I mean, this guy pretty much ran the country. So, you know, he would not want government interference because he was the boss, as you will see, you know, later on in the podcast. By and large, though, during this time, the government really did maintain a hands-free attitude towards business. And it kind of allowed yeah. these business owners to grow into what they started being called, which was a derogatory term uh, known as the robber barons. And people view them as these people, like, is there such a thing as being too wealthy? Well, it wasn't just wealth. It was it was wealth, but this was like filthy wealth. There was wealth that was beyond what anyone else could even comprehend at the time. And it was also wealth that built on the back of a lot of labor. So a lot of people were like, you know, they're the workers are working hard, but they're producing, they're working these like, you know, 20 hour days and horrible yeah. conditions. Remember, when this is hands off, this is mean there's no government regulation. So there's no government regulations on the hours of work. There's no government regulations on like the safety conditions. I mean, just look at mining photos from this time. Oh, You've yeah. Seen these people coming up out of these mines. So just kids, covered really, in kids. kids and stuck in these like small little like cages that they went down up the mine. So like safety precautions and stuff like that were just, it didn't exist because there was no regulation. And just really, this laissez-faire attitude really goes through this time all the way up into what, I guess, 1929, right? When you have the Great Depression. Really, really not to the New Deal that you start seeing these programs put in, you know, put in place. Yes, to have some it. equality. While some people became very rich and others remained very poor, mostly, uh, many thinkers believe that inequalities were part of a social order, and that you brought that up before, Tom. And to explain why some of these people prospered and others did not, economists and social philosophers, and specifically these business leaders we're talking about, embraced the philosophy of social Darwinism. And this philosophy was adopted from the ideas of British naturalist uh, Charles Darwin. Everyone kind of knows yeah. that. Yeah. Um, you know, survival of the fittest. Sorry, I mean, he studied fittest, plants yeah. and animals, but basically concluded that the members of a species compete for survival and those that best adapt to the environment thrive and pass their traits to next generation, while less suited members kind of gradually die out. And 
this was the belief at the time of why these people became so wealthy and kind of how they justified having and controlling so much of the U.S. economy and their wealth was the fact that they simply believed in this idea that, you know what, maybe they're just better than those below yeah. them. Well, a lot of social Darwinism too. I mean, it's a whole other topic, but it gets it gets racial too. That just oh, like yeah. certain ethnic races were superior to others and had more of a chance of survival and thus it was their duty to do that. That's not necessarily what's going on with Morgan and Rockefeller. They're more just like cutthroat, right? Like it's yes. the idea that they're going to do what needs to be done and you know, they're, they're the fittest. They're the ones that are best and have the skills to navigate through this new landscape of industry, basically use the rules, though the non-rules of capitalism at the time to just command these huge amounts of wealth, which then gives him this huge amount of like power as well. Yeah. Do you know there was 4,000 millionaires that emerged between the Civil War and 1900? 4,000 millionaires, which at the time, millions of dollars, as we mentioned in the last podcast, was like an imaginary number. You know, those wealthy people basically looked at the poor classes and were like, well, you know what? You're just lazy. You're inferior. You're not really... You know, you must be inferior and lazy. You don't des- you don't deserve the lot and the life that I have. Um, yeah, it's almost an idea of the American dream, but it's kind of a bit like skewed. You know, like you can yeah. do it if you work hard too. And it's like, yeah, but not necessarily. And that kind of brings us to our first guy, because I think our first guy, at least on paper, and I think he meant to a certain extent to embody something that was a little different. He wanted to go against the grain. And Andrew Carnegie is often known as one of the greatest philanthropists of his generation, or really of American history, because this guy truly yeah. embodied this belief that if you have wealth, if you if you got this wealth, and as you'll see here, he got it from nothing, he worked his way up, you should give that wealth back. Except there's one little hiccup, and I, I say little, but it's, it's really a little. not a little. This guy, well, I mean, he would say things. He's like one of those like yin and yang, I guess, personalities, right? That's how I always kind of we talk about Carnegie because on one hand he said workers should have the right to unionize, right? I guess we'll and get into it a little bit more later. Strike. But then he had the Homestead strike, but he basically lowered the wages of plant workers who decided to union, and that that like erupted into like a huge issue. Like you know, a lot of people people died, you know. So like you know, literally. violence erupted because of that. Well, yeah, literally people died, Pete. Of course, but like you know, well, you know, he was in his defense, he was on vacation. He was in Scotland when that big thing happened. But we'll get to that. Yeah, but he was, I mean, I'll argue. Yeah, he was still you, boss. Of course guy in charge. They're not doing anything unless he tells you what to do. That's kind of like a coincidence, right, that he happened to be in Scotland time. But he did do a lot of, open up a lot of libraries. So he kind of had that like yin and yang that dichotomy that he was, he said one thing, did another. But, you know, he didn't always back up what he said with his actions. But he did do a lot of good, too. You can't argue that also, so. So let's get going with our Scottish-born Andrew Carnegie. He was born, obviously, as I mentioned, in Scotland. Uh, he was born in 1835, and he passed away in 1919. So he actually lived through World War One. By then, however, he had already sold his business to the second person we're going to talk about today. That's J.P. Morgan. And he kind of lived off his wealth, which was humongous for the time. His job at the end when he was in retirement was to actually figure out ways to give his money away, which is kind of crazy. That was his retirement job. Like, how do I yeah. give my money away? He, he, he um, gave away about 90% of his wealth. So they say he, he gave away around $350 million, which is roughly $5.5 billion today. That's what he was basically yeah. giving away. And it just wasn't easy. Just think about that for a second. These people have so much money that it's hard for them just to give it away. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, think yeah. about that for a second. They can't give it away in, in their life. Enough. 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 Yeah, yeah. They can't give it. They literally cannot just say, oh, what can I ben- spend this on? There's not enough things. There's not enough stuff for him even to spend his money on. Nuts. Crazy. That's the wealth 
that he generated, you know, through his companies with steel. Basically. Yeah. So he's basically known. Yeah. Uh, he's most known for Carnegie Steel Company, steel. just to get out of the way, which was the most profitable uh, steel company in probably the world at the time. When he sold it in 1901, he wound up selling it to JP Morgan for $480 million, which was an astronomical sum at the time. But let's talk about how he got there and what he did to get there. And really, maybe you guys could judge yourselves whether he was a bad guy or not, because we'll also talk about where some of this money went to. But uh, you want to kind of talk about his racks to riches a little bit, Tom? Before he was born in Scotland, he they lived on ground floor, which he shared with the neighboring family. So it was just like kind of like a shared room. I think of like a college dorm, right? Had like a shared living space and the sleeping quarters were a little off to the side. Um, they do eventually move into a larger house later on. His um, life growing up, he did go to a school because of a philanthropist. A philanthropist by the name of um, Adam Rowland actually um, gave money to like this area so that the kids that could go to school. And that's actually how Carnegie wound up um, getting educated a little yeah. bit. His uncle was a major influence on him. He was actually a political leader, introduced him to other the writing and historical heroes. And he got into like reading and things. They wound up coming to the U.S., by the way, in 1848. So yeah, he's about yeah. 13 years yeah. old, and that's where his formal education ends, right? They moved to Pennsylvania. He was done. Pittsburgh. As you mentioned here, he basically literally starts working his way up. He initially starts as a 13, 14-year-old working in a cotton factory, right, in uh, near Pittsburgh. He earned a dollar and 20 cents a week, and he was a bobbin boy. He would change the spools of thread in a cotton mill. Exactly. For 12 hours a day, basically. You can see pictures, not of him, but if you just Google Bobbin Boy, you will probably be like, oh, I've seen this picture before. These like barefoot children on these humongous cotton machines. And a lot of times what would happen is the, the threads would go so quickly they would cut off fingers of these people. And I, oh, yeah, that's yeah. kind of how he started at a cotton factory, right? And then he was super hardworking, and this was really seen by his boss. So he started being used as a messenger in a cotton factory. Then he got moved over to a telegraph office. And he started off as a messenger there because he did such a good job in the cotton factory. He got two fifty a week, two dollars and fifty cents a week as a uh, telegraph worker. So well, that's a that's double making money. What he was making, making money. Yeah, 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 it was big. So you know, at that point, as a messenger in telegraph office, then he becomes the secretary, then becomes the telegraph operator for the superintendent of Pittsburgh Division, right, of Pennsylvania Railroad. That's kind of how he gets involved in railroads because before there was steel, there was railroads. You'll notice here, what he kind of does here becomes known as uh, vertical integration and railroads kind of play a part in that, which we'll get to in a second. But basically succeeds at this Pennsylvania Railroad as a telegraph operator does so well. And he's recognized so well that about 1859, he actually succeeded his boss as a railroad division superintendent. So the, the family of that on the Pennsylvania Railroad were like, you know what? You're doing such a great job. Why don't you manage? They just kept on, they just kept on moving him up. And then by moving up, he started he hired what, his brother, yep. his cousin. So his cousin, Maria Hogan, no relation to the Hulk, actually becomes the first <laughs> female telegraph operator in the country. It's kind of like a little Jeopardy question there, I guess. So but Carnegie Denick actually improves to $1,500 a year, which is like 45000 by today's standards. So he's making, he's doing well. And he just keeps on, and by doing this, he's getting a little bit more money, which he's then going to use to invest into the railroads itself, which is how he's really going to start making a fortune. But once he becomes the superintendent of the railroad company and, and he gets in with his family members, this is when it really starts going. He catches notice of Thomas Scott, is right, the yeah, main superintendent of the, one, yeah. of the Pennsylvania Railroad. And we mentioned Thomas Scott a little bit in our last podcast because he kind of comes to play here a little bit. But um, Thomas Scott is the one that kind of becomes the the Jedi master to Carnegie's Padawan here. And 
And he's the guy that kind of helps him rise up. He sees something in this kid and he's like, all right, I'll make you my private secretary. Then I'll make you a telegrapher. Then I'll give you this. I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you supervise. And, and that he kind of helps him rise up. And while he gets this money, he also kind of helps him figure out where to invest this money. And one of the first uh, investments, I mean, he invests in many different things. He invests in coal, iron, oil company, uh, railroad sleeping cars is the one that really makes him his Yeah, money. I mean, yeah, piece, right. what that basically was is these were, think of like first class travel for the 1800s, right? The 1850s yep. and 60s. Anything business travel over 500 miles, they would have these sleeping cars, which is exactly what it is. It was a car that had like a bed in it and like more luxurious type of travel basically for business class. And um these were people who had money to spend on that. And they, if they were going to be on a train for that long, they wanted to have some luxury, you know, be able to rest, whatever. And it just it just caught on. He just made a lot of money doing that, being able to invest in these first-class travel sleeping cars. Yeah, and based on what I read about him too is he didn't take his money and spend it. He took his money and reinvested, reinvested it yeah. over and over and over. By the age 30, so at this point, having you know Thomas Scott kind of letting him, this superintendent of the Pennsylvania Railroad, letting him rise up the ranks and eventually taking over. And this guy starts investing in this Woodruff uh, sleeping car company. Uh, eventually, by the age of 30, right, Carnegie has an annual income of $50,000, which is a lot. Right today, I mean, even today, when you become a teacher, I think a starting salary is around fifty thousand um, dollars. This is, you know, we're talking eighteen hundreds, eighteen fifties. Good money, good money. But he then starts to travel a lot, and he starts to travel because he's trying to sell some railroad securities, specifically in his locomotive works, but also in his sleeping cart company. And during his trips to Britain, he meets a lot of steel makers. And he's like, all right, um, I could see that there's going to be a demand for iron and steel in the United States, specifically because he's so tied to the Pennsylvania Railroad in which he's working. So he's like, you know, we're always going to need steel because of the railroads. It's 1865. So we're talking like literally just the end of the Civil War. Yeah, He saw how, how successful the railroad was in the Civil War. His railroad company actually um, evacuated the Union troops after the battle of the first battle of Bull Run. So he and, yep. he and he saw how being able to transport these munitions, goods, and troops over railroad really helped the North defeat the Confederacy. So he knew how important it was. He's like, they're just going to, there's just going to be more railroads built in this country now. I need to get in and how they build railroads, they need steel. So that's how he gets in the sales. Again, it's the means of production. It's not just production itself. It's the means of yeah, production. Best, that's what, that's what, what he's controlling. Bessemer process? The Bessemer process? The Bessemer process, which basically was basically was allowed to mass produce steel. steel like high, which is crazy, too. It was because, the best for railroads. Um, it wasn't good for building bridges. So no, buildings. Yeah. This is a different type of steel they're going to do for that. This is literally just for railroad. You would add air. It would be injected into molten iron, and that would supply oxygen. That would react with some impurities, and that would form into oxides. And again, we're not scientists, yeah. but basically what it did is it created a quick way to create steel. It was the best of your furnace that basically melted yeah. steel really quickly, and it allowed it to be mass-produced. And it was not, like you said, strong enough necessarily yet, although it eventually becomes for buildings, but it was perfect for a cheap way to produce steel needed for railroads. And Andrew Carnegie kind of gets that idea and brings it over. And at the age of 38, he begins concentrating essentially just on steel, creates his first steel mill, right, in Pittsburgh, eventually evolves into Carnegie Steel Company. And in the 1870s, they start building really the first steel plants in the United States to use this steel making process, which was borrowed from Britain. And after that, you know, many different innovations, detailed costs and production accounting procedures. He was all about efficiency. He's reinventing things and really revolutionary when it comes to the process of making steel. But he's also doing a lot of things to help with the selling of steel, 
right? Yep. So his success was also due to his relationship with the railroad industries, but also relied on money from steel transport. And he worked with the railroad barons to negotiate prices instead yep. of free market competition. So like everything was negotiated ahead of time. So he did like kind of a market manipulation. This really wouldn't be allowed today, right? Yep. He also encouraged the United States like trade tariffs to work in favor of the steel industry. And he spent a lot of energy and resources on Congress for like to continue these tr- tariffs, which helped him earn millions of dollars in 1889, yep. millions of dollars a year right, in that time span. He kept this information concealed. Like there were legal documents that got released later on. If you really look at them now, they, the tariffs are very favorable towards US steel. And again, with these antitrust laws and stuff today, they, it, they wouldn't work today. It'd be called like, yeah. I guess, insider trading, things like that today. It's totally illegal, but it yeah. worked back then. Right? This is laissez-faire. This is like, you know, hands off, like a eighth grade dance. And it just created like a lot of like issues and stuff. Like have a lot of money for people. And well, and it was also hands off because the federal governments, this is working for. I mean, if a U.S. economy is going well until it doesn't, which we'll get it's into. It's doing great, bit. yeah. So any form of technological innovation that, that could reduce the cost of making steel, he quickly jumped on it, right? And by 1890s, his mills produced a basic open hearth furnace into American steel making. All these new inventions just over and over and over. But the key here is the efficiency aspect. And that is when we get into this vertical integration. It's, it's a milestone in American manufacturing. Right? So he basically, he's like, right, what do I need to sell my steel? Well, I need a railroad. So let me buy railroads. I'm going to need iron ore deposits. So let me buy iron mines, uh, coke fields. Let me buy anything and everything, raw material that I need and every aspect of steel making that is needed for me to make my company profitable. Let me own it. So there was never a middleman. He owned all aspects and means of production. The steel, you know, from the iron ore that was found, from the coke fields, everything was owned by him. He never had to pay anyone uh, because he would move it on his own railroads. Also, winds up finding some really, really good subordinates to work for him, including his administrator, which kind of is a good segue here, Henry Clay Frick. This administrator gets him in trouble. So in 1889, Carnegie's vast holdings are all consolidated into the Carnegie Steel Company. He is, from that point forward, dominating American steel industry. He is the number one steel producer. Controlling it all, yes. Controls it all. Actually, it's so intense that the American, his American steel industry by 1890s surpasses that of Great Britain for the first time ever. And that's mainly because of this one dude. Here's England producing the steel for years and Carnegie just surpassed them. You know, then you're getting into the depression of 1892, which is when you get into the Homestead strike. And that kind of... It tarnishes, I would say, Andrew Carnegie's. Um, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, well, that, I mean, it has to tarnish. You want to, should we should we talk about that a little bit? Or what? yeah, I would I would definitely talk about it because mm. he considered himself as like the champion of the working man, like ooh, you know, always talking about hey, let's help the the poor guy and the worker. Uh, we have the uh, Homestead strike in 1892, which happens in Homestead, Pennsylvania. It's a steel mill. So union workers basically protest uh, wage cuts. Their wages were cut. The economy is not doing well. General Manager Henry Clay Frick, because of the fact that. Carnegie was on vacation in Scotland during the strike. So Frick was the one that decided he's going to break up this this union strike. The morning of when they were going into work, he basically locks the workers out of the plant. The workers are screaming and they're upset. And Frick at that point calls in 300 Pinkertons. And Pinkertons were basically like a... Yeah, yeah, detectives. Think of like a police force for hire. They were like mercenaries, but... Yeah, no, but right? they were a hired police force. They were a hired police yes. force. You hear them throughout history at this this time. Period. At this time, yeah. Of... We should do a podcast on them. Let's go say that, yes. But anyway, 300 Pinkerton armed guards, um, 
were brought out to protect the plant, right? There's a bloody battle that breaks out between the striking workers and the Pickertons, and 10 people are left for dead. Uh, eventually, it gets so intensely violent that a state militia has to be sent in to take control of the entire town uh, of Homestead, Pennsylvania. Government allows businesses to do whatever they want. So government sides with the Carnegie Company and basically arrests all the union leaders. Frick winds up hiring replacement workers for the plant after that. The strike goes on for like five months. But by this point, the labor movement in the Pittsburgh area basically knows that they cannot in any way, shape or form rely on A, the government or B, their boss, Andrew Carnegie. And it kind of cripples the union movement in Pittsburgh area for, you know, for decades. And that really tarnishes Andrew Carnegie's reputation per se. And I think, I mean, obviously he still continues and he holds on to the company, but as a champion of the people, the working man, uh, it's kind of over. Because he just went against the working man, you know? Exactly. Let's kind of get into the beginning of the end of his his company. So even uh, even because of the strike, Carnegie still still continues to prosper. He still tries to be all efficient about life and all that other stuff. He winds up selling his company to JP Morgan's newly formed United States Steel Corporation, which kind of takes in and absorbs the Carnegie Steel Corporation. He sells it for four hundred eighty million in nineteen oh one. Yeah. He retires. At that point he basically retires and Wait, he's he like retires. all right. But he's done because his share amount was two hundred and twenty five million dollars, which is actually in today's money that's seven point three five billion. So yeah. that's why he that's what was basically paid to him in a form of bonds. But he would get all this money. So that's why he said, all right, I'm not, what am I going to do with this? And that's how he becomes a scholar, an activist, philanthropist at this Nuts. point. And it's also when he writes his, because uh, he writes this idea in a North American review, he winds up writing an article called Wealth. And in it, he describes this gospel of wealth. And in it, he says it's a doctrine that a man who accumulates great wealth has a duty to then use this wealth for the improvement of mankind. A man, he says, who dies rich, dies disgraced. Like, you cannot die rich. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Kind of jump into JP Morgan in a second because he takes over and continues this wealth. But Carney kind of just retires and figures out what to do with his money and and he gives it away. I mean, yeah, he kind of just buddies up with a lot of like famous people from the time. Um, Herbert Spencer, Mark Twain, he becomes really friends or acquaintances with most of the U.S. presidents and statesmen, writers at the time. He travels a lot, like you said. He takes his mother all over the place. Uh, he winds up, I mean, kind of just to wrap it up, he, uh, he f- founded the establishment of more than 2,500 public libraries around yeah. the globe. Some of these statistics. He donated more than 7,600 organs to churches worldwide. 
Uh, he endowed organizations, many that are still in existence today, uh, dedicated to research in science, education, world peace, and any other philanthropic cause that he could think of. Also among his gifts was the $1.1 million at the time that was required to purchase land and the construction costs of what became known as Carnegie Hall, a uh, New York City concert venue, opened in 1891. Also the Carnegie Institution for Science, Carnegie Mellon University, and Carnegie Foundation were all founded by him and his financial gifts. And to this day, because he loved books so much, he is the largest individual investor in public libraries in all of American history. And then he dies. He dies August 11, 1919. And um, he still had $30 million left when he passed away. Still, right? Only that much. And he um, basically, that gets um, given away to foundations, charities, and stuff like, things like that. He's buried in Sleepy Hollow Cemetery in New York. And he's actually a few yards away from Samuel Gompers, who another big figure of yeah. the industry. Legal age, that's like something we can do. He was a, a um, like cigar maker, labor union leader. So there's a lot to do with him too. Hmm. Could, Good to know. From this age, you have, you have like one of the union leaders and one of the robber barons like right in, within yards of each other. And that's Hollis kind of ironic. Time. That's funny. Yeah. Which brings us over to J.P. Morgan, one of the most powerful bankers of all time. JP, John Piermont Morgan. He actually did not like to be called John. He preferred being called Piermont. I'm sorry, I'm going to call him something different. If you look up go a ahead, picture of this ahead. guy. Now, I shouldn't be talking bad about the guy because he's been dead and whatever. But when I see every picture, it wasn't just like one picture. Maybe because my son's been watching Muppet Mayhem. Maybe I, that's why I had that idea. How about this? How about let's just agree that <laughs> it would be easy to make a Muppet out of out, out of out of the, the caricature. Making a caricature yes, Muppet yes, out yes. of him would, would not be difficult for... Jim Henson. Indeed. <laughs> That's fine. So anyway, J.P. Morgan, uh, you guys probably heard of this guy because J.P. Morgan and Chase, Chase Bank, and that's kind of where this comes from. Uh, but not just Chase Bank. I mean, this guy financed railroads, uh, organized U.S. Steel, General Electric, actually, GE. That's his uh, one of his major corporations. Uh, he's a dude from Connecticut, basically born to a wealthy fa uh, family, as opposed to the other three people we talked about. This guy was born to yeah. money, and he just followed his father into born banking in the 1850s, and then eventually uh, forms a partnership in 1871 with another banker, Anthony Drexel, and they create a new firm, which was known as J.P. Morgan & Company, which today you know as financial giant J.P. Morgan & Chase. But this guy was the definition of just filthy wealth. I mean, he bailed out the United States federal government on multiple occasions from different panics, financial panics, and then literally created kind of like a group of, you know, club, you might say, of wealthy investors yeah. and bankers that determine how U.S. economy ran. Like if you wanted the if you wanted to, uh, to have an inflation, he could make that happen. If he wanted to, I mean, stockflation is not a thing yet, but like recession, you name it, he could literally control the entire nation's economy. Yeah, this one guy, the money. yeah, this one guy and his group of like banker friends, and that is surreal. And that is also why Teddy Roosevelt and you know federal government was like, mm, no. Maybe you shouldn't do that. Yeah, because one guy can control the economy on a whim. That's that's, that's a problem. That's an issue. That's a problem. That's a, pro that's a problem. All right. So John Pierremont Morgan, born into a distinguished New England family, as I mentioned before, in 1837 in Hartford, Connecticut. His relatives also a very wealthy family already. James Pierremont uh, was a uh, uh, founder of Yale University. That's his relative. Aetna Insurance Company, which is still around today. That was like his yeah. grandfather that did that. His father himself actually ran a really successful Hartford dry goods company um, in like early 1800s. 
and then eventually became a, a partner in like a much bigger London-based merchant banking firm. He was known very much to be a studious kid. I mean, he was sent, JP Morgan was sent to study in Europe. He was fluent in French and German. So by the time he returned to New York City, really in 1850s, so the 20-year-old JP Morgan is super well-educated, super wealthy, and has all of his father's connections. He makes money during the Civil War too, I guess we can talk about. Yeah. Again, they all do that. But he actually was rich enough. He paid for he paid three hundred dollars for a substitute to take his place in in the war. We forgot to mention what's his name did that too. Carnegie did the same thing. Yeah, they all same did. thing. Actually, you could pay someone else to take your place if you got drafted. Silver spoons, right? You know? Yep. So yeah, right. It was no senator's son. That's kind of like the uh idea here. Grit makes a lot of money after the Battle of Antietam where the war really turns into the union's favor. Go back, listen to our podcast on that, right? He basically, Morgan profited in um, gold, transferred $1.5 million worth of gold to England. And it forced like this like price spike and yep. allowed him and his partners to make a large profit. And people were like, kind of saying, why'd you do that? You know, the nation's at war and you're moving around this gold. It actually didn't affect the country much um, as far as economic consequences, other than it made him a lot of money. I mean, he already had a ton of money. But this is putting him into like that. Put him into like the stratosphere a bit more. His bank was the most powerful banking institution in the world uh, by 1895. So, just kind of a, an idea. What he winds up doing is, a lot of the times, be really big in reorganizing, consolidating financially troubled railroads. So he would like yeah, find a like financially this. troubled railroad and he would like buy it up cheap and then absorb it and then sell its shares by having it sold to another company. And it's almost like he was making profit off of other people's- Their failures he was making yeah. money off of. Because he's buying up all these troubled railroads and consolidating them and basically raising its stock and manipulating that stock once he consolidates them, it was estimated that he controlled about one sixth of all America's rail lines shortly after the Civil War. So the United States- you know, I might be jumping a little bit, but the United States doesn't really have a central bank at this time. So if there's any form of economic crisis, there's it's not like today we have the Fed. You know, if we have an inflation or stockflation or anything else where the federal government tries to control uh, the economic flow by basically raising or lowering interest, interest rates, rates and things like that. Right. Yeah, it, that and that's it, not there back then. There are, there's none of those regulatory bodies yet. Kind of where he comes into play because after reorganizing these railroads, he arranges an agreement between two of the largest railroads in the country, the New York Central Railroad and the Pennsylvania Railroad. And he minimizes any form of rate war between the two. Ultimately, what winds up happening is through these dealings with these railroads, he becomes like the great influencer of all railroad and anything that deals with railroads, including steel and everything else, which is why he eventually buys Carnegie Steel Company. I think it's the Panic of 1893. Multiple panics, but there is one exactly. 1883 and 1885, yeah. Yeah. In the 1895 one, Morgan assisted in rescuing America's gold standard. Uh, he basically headed a banking syndicate that loaned the federal government money, more than $60 million. The federal government was literally going to shut down. Like this happened since then. But in 1895, it seemed like a really scary thing. The federal government is about to shut down. And JP Morgan literally goes to the White House and like meets with the president. And he's like, all right, like how much yeah, money do you guys need? He meets with Gover Cleveland. And they basically come up with a uh, plan where Morgan and uh, the Rockchilds, another rich, wealthy family, they sell 3.5 million ounces of gold directly to the U.S. Treasury in exchange for a 30-year bond issue. And what this basically does is it um, it saved the Treasury, but it hurt Cleveland's standing. A lot of people were kind of like, um, particularly in the Democratic Party, like, why are you doing this? You know, His yeah. political career was pretty much over after this. They saved the Treasury in the election of 1896. The bankers came under attack from William Jennings Bryan. 
And then Morgan yep. was among, um, actually donated heavily to William McKinley, who then yeah. gets shot. And then that ushers in Teddy William, Roosevelt, Roosevelt, which yeah, yeah. changes everything. <laughs> yeah, not for the better for him. So this is how wealthy this guy is in 1890s. He's literally bailing out the federal government. Eventually, at that point, he arranges the merger of Edison General Electric with Thompson Hudson Electric Company, and he forms the General Electric Company. The GE. So all this guy does is just he works on mergers. He looks at companies and tries to buy them out, merge them with others, pumping up their stock value and then making money off those profits. He then uh, finds the creation of Federal Steel Company in 1898. But when he joins that with Carnegie Steel Company in 1901 and eventually even joins other companies and he forms this United States Steel Corporation, which is the world's first billion dollar corporation in 1902. Then he goes in and starts looking at agricultural equipment and manufacturers that produce uh, tractors and anything else that deals with agriculture. So he starts consolidating those companies and he forms a humongous company known as the International Harvester Company. He went, got into the transatlantic shipping lines. Did you see that? That Including White Star? Yeah. He was supposed to be on a Titanic. He's supposed to be in Titanic, but yeah, left. He had a lot of connects. He was supposed to be in Titanic. He actually worked with uh, Tesla for a while. Until Tesla took the money that he gave him and tried to make um, like wireless transmissions, which was like something that people couldn't even imagine, you know, back in back in that day. But yeah, he had a lot of connections and with other place history, which makes sense with how like powerful he was, you know, that he yeah. was going to be involved in a lot of this stuff. But yeah, he was supposed to be on a maiden voyage in Titanic, and basically he's like he didn't feel well, so he he canceled like the day of, which is crazy. Yeah. Um. Anyway, he averts or at least attempts to avert another financial collapse in the stock market panic of 1907. But this is also when uh, the federal government's like, ah, should this is this guy a little too powerful? He heads a group of bankers that took in large government deposits and decided how the money was to be used for purposes of financial relief. So basically yeah. took the government money and we're like, how do we fix the economy? What should we pour more money into? What should we take money out of? He's controlling the f before the Fed because the Fed is created shortly thereafter. But he's yeah, controlling thirteen. Yep, he's controlling the federal government spending to try to figure out how to best make the U.S. economy run. Yeah, they're saying that's not what yeah, they don't want one person or these group of people being able to do that. So the underscored need for some sort of like oversight. So in nineteen thirteen, the banking and political leaders came together and they created the uh, what becomes the Federal Reserve System. That was yep. put into effect shortly after that. Yeah. Well, a lot of that stems from Muckraker, journalists kind of pointing it out. It's like, how can you have this yeah, one guy basically determine how the economy runs, which is kind of scary. And that leads to after the Federal Reserve System is created, that eventually leads to Clay and Antitrust Act. And that also further kind of diminishes his power. And as we mentioned before, you have Teddy Roosevelt comes into play. And Teddy Roosevelt, what he winds up doing is he winds up enforcing an act that we mentioned last time, which has been around before, and that is the Sherman Antitrust Act. And Teddy Roosevelt as president was interesting in a sense that he didn't bust all trusts. He kind of made these gentleman agreements, uh, also with JP Morgan, where he basically met with these people and he's like, all right, you're going to be better, let's say, to unions and you're going to be better to workers and you're going to do the right thing by the federal government or I'm going to shut you down. The Sherman Antitrust Act, which was um, formed by Congress in 1890, made it illegal to form a trust that interfered with free trade between states or with other countries, but it also prohibited monopolies and other activities that hindered competition. 
So anybody that if he felt that JP Morgan in any way, shape or form was hindering competition, he said, I could shut you down. One of the main firms that was persecuted under Sherman Act by Teddy was the Standard Oil. When he winds up dying at 75 in 1913, things are changing because the federal government by 1913, you have the progressive era kicking in and you have people are being upset. They're actually visibly upset and the media is upset through these muckraker generalists. Uh, and they point out in how much wealth some people have in relation to others and how much power these people wield with having that yeah, much they, they want to limit they want to limit it but you can argue that they still have power it's just it's just, of course. You know, through like packs and political dealings and stuff like that but they don't necessarily have that direct power. it's not as in the open you know everybody you talk about people that they're going to say you know, corporations own parts of america the corporations control you know a lot of the politics you know for a variety of reasons you can make that argument but it, it's not like okay so it's not as clear cut you can't like pin it on them as necessarily as much now i guess as you could looking back then there are regulatory things there are trust acts that are going to stop stuff like that from happening again somewhat at least on paper yeah. what's up happening here is jp morgan kind of closes that up and there's other guys i mean after jp morgan the next guy that really had that much wealth which we're not going to talk about in this podcast would be henry ford he kind of like as these guys are dying out uh, Henry Ford is rising up, really. You know, 1913, uh, when J.P. Morgan dies, Henry Ford's company and the Model T is sh- shortly be introduced. And But by then, what the federal government had learned from these four men, right, from Vanderbilt, from Rockefeller, from J.P. Morgan, and Andrew Carnegie. Yeah. yeah, what they learned is that perhaps some of these corporations need to be broken down and some of these wealthy men need to be managed a little bit more. Nuts. I mean, look at this way. In 2015, the Carnegie Corporation estimated that at his peak wealth, right, Carnegie was worth $309 billion accounting for inflation. So in comparison, in 2023, Elon Musk is worth $219 billion, right? Carnegie was worth 309 Jeff Bezos is worth roughly $171 billion. Bill Gates comes in at like $129 billion, and Warren Buffett clocks in at like $118 billion. Carnegie had $309 billion. But yeah, so I mean, whether these guys were good men or whether these guys were bad men, uh, you know, that's, I guess, for you to decide. However, a lot of people do see them as titans of industry. And they definitely they were do... that. They definitely were influential. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they did make American economy strong. They did make American industry strong. They did help industrialize America and put it on a map as, a, as an industrious nation, except the question becomes morally at what cost and for whom. And, you know, that's a question that we could kind of leave you guys with, you know, to ponder yourself. But uh, I think there's no denying that these men were extremely influential in American history to making our nation and our economy be what it is today. Thank you guys so much for listening to our part two of a two-part episode on the robber barons. We will be back next week with another episode. Until then, you guys can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. We are there to answer any of your questions. If you have any, uh, please also make sure you guys subscribe, click the like button, and you know follow us on social media. We are all over there. We're out you there. Can find us over. And I guess that's it. So uh, until next week, guys, enjoy. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. 
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.